Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. My name is Eric, if I have not had the chance to meet you. I am a pastor in training here. Um, we've mentioned this a little bit before. I just want to give this caveat. We structure the way that we do our sermons and our teaching uh, in a teaching team where we have a group of people who work through passages together and we, we will have the primary teacher writing a sermon. Everyone else will be checking it, commenting on it, revising it together um, over several weeks leading up to the week of the teaching, which is great because you get a lot of people, people's eyes on it, a lot of people's input. Um, another added benefit is when someone who is supposed to teach cannot teach, another person who was there can step in. So I received this teaching on Friday night, and I feel great about it. Fortunately, fortunately, Kent spent a lot of time working on it, so I just had to make a couple tweaks to make it sound like I was saying it, and I take full credit. So <clears throat> there you go. Um, so we are uh, going to start today. I- I've got a, a question for you. Um, is doubt a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, Wow. We've got a lot. I'm actually curious. Now I want to ask people, like in a one-on-one setting. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for a follower of Jesus? And just from that brief second, uh, you can see some people are kind of appropriately hesitant to answer, but also people have different answers on either side of that question. I think a lot of that is because over the years, Christians have spent a lot of time and many, many long hours debating the answer to that question. And so some Christians would say, yeah, doubt is a good thing, right? To have faith without doubt is, is kind of akin to having an immune system with no antibodies in it, right? It makes you more vulnerable sometimes uh, to crises of faith as it comes to, to faith than you would be otherwise. That's one perspective. And other Christians would point out that nearly every time that doubt gets brought up in Scripture, which it does often, uh, it seems to be portrayed negatively a lot of the time, like it's a liability and not an asset. So those people conclude that doubt must be an inherently bad thing and is to be avoided. Um, and, and with most, I would say, most hotly contested topics within evangelicalism, the, the truth is probably somewhere in between, somewhere in the middle. I heard some people say it depends. Um, and I, I think the answer mostly depends on, on what we mean when we say the word doubt. Uh, in the Bible, and particularly in the Gospels, there are, there are at least two different words that we see translated, uh, in, translated to English as doubt. So one word is distazo. Can everybody say distazo? Yeah, that's pretty good. I've seen Marcus do that before, so I want to see if it worked. It did. Good job. So distazo means literally uh, a double stance. So if you remember uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about uh, the story of Peter stepping out of the boat to walk on the water towards Jesus, and he's sinking. So distazo is the idea of wavering between opposing beliefs. 
Um, so Peter, he, he steps out on the water and then he starts to sink because he is torn between the two beliefs that, one, Jesus is greater than the storm and the waves and everything that's around him. But on the other side, these waves may be greater than Jesus because they're pretty big and I'm in the middle of the ocean. So he is torn between two different things. He has a double stance is what, is what, mean, what that means. And I don't really think there's room for debating one way or the other, like whether uh, it's good or bad to have that because that's just... That's part of life as a human, as a follower of Jesus. We all uh, experience some kind of distazzo in our lives. It's just the reality of things. But then there's another word in the Bible that is translated as doubt, and that word is apostia. Can you say apostia? Great. You guys are so good at this. Um, so apostia means literally to be without faith. Um, so it's, or without belief, or sometimes translated unbelief. Um, so this is more of a heart posture, uh, a posture that is set against faith in Jesus. It's, it's like an unwillingness to accept who Jesus is and what he's capable of. So it's like a, a stubbornness against just the very idea that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, that type of doubt is presented pretty much exclusively as, uh, as a bad thing in the Bible or as a negative thing when it comes up. And that is our focus and the focus of our passage in Matthew this morning. So in this passage, um, you may have already realized this or drawn this conclusion, but Jesus is going to tell us something that uh, most of us don't really love to hear, uh, and that's that there's at least a little bit of this unbelief in all of us at different times. So we're going to dive in. We're going to see what Jesus says. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. It's where we are, that passage that we just read. Um, So as a church, we have been walking through, story by story, through the... um, through, through this first century biography of Jesus' life that is, that is the book of Matthew. So if you were here last week, um, we covered a story of Jesus interacting with a woman who was from a Gentile region of the country. This week, he is now back in Jewish territory uh, where he encounters some familiar faces. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are some characters that have come up before. Um, so pick up in chapter 16, verse 1. Wow, that is so hot. Sorry. These yetis were great. Ah, goodness. All right. Verse one says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. So pro tip, when you are reading the New Testament, anytime you hear that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing something together, your ears should perk up, right? You should be like, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Um, because these two groups of people were not fans of each other. They both were not fans of a lot of things in general, but especially each other. And so um, this would be kind of like, if you're familiar with our current political climate at all, this would be like if you heard that Marjorie Taylor Greene and AOC decided to co-sponsor a bill. It'd be like, they're doing what now? (laughs) I would love to hear what is going to happen, Uh, because that doesn't happen, ever. Like, that, that is kind of unthinkable at times. And so the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time, they were both technically Jewish religious groups at the time, but that is pretty much where the similarities stopped. Um, the Pharisees, we talked about them last week a little bit more and, and previously. These were like the hyper-conservative, uh, moral majority-esque, rule-following crowd. They held the, the Bible in their day really, really highly in super high regard, and then held everyone who didn't hold it in as high regard as they did in the same ways in very low regard. 
Um, so the Sadducees, on the other hand, were sort of this like highbrow socialite group of their day. They were technically a religious group, but they were really um, secular in their view of the world. So they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They, they only used their religious status um, primarily as a means to political power. So you would often find them kind of like whining and dining with anybody who's anybody in first century Jewish culture and trying to have that social status. Uh, one person I heard uh, called the Pharisees, he broke it down like this. He said, the Pharisees are serious and the Sadducees are sophisticated. It's kind of the, the way that is, uh, it's socially at least. And I think it's a pretty helpful way of putting it. So you have one group who thinks that they are righteous because they rigidly obey the scriptures and they look down on anyone that they consider worldly. And then you have another group of people that think they're righteous because of their social clout, their connections. They look down their nose at anyone that they consider to be old-fashioned or prudes. Um, so it's always good to be careful about reading our current cultural climate uh, into the pages of the Bible. But that said, I think there's some pretty obvious parallels in uh, society today. I think that that is something that we can acknowledge. Um, there is, at, at bare minimum, we can acknowledge that there's nothing new under the sun, as the Bible would put it. Um, but all that to say, you can kind of see how these two groups in Jesus' day didn't have a lot in common. They didn't really work together. But here, in Matthew chapter 16, they do come together in a rare moment of unity. And so Matthew says they both wanted to test Jesus. So Matthew chooses that word very intentionally. It's the same word that is used earlier in Matthew when we hear the story of Jesus in the wilderness when Satan tests Jesus. Um, so in other words, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are playing on the wrong team here, right? If Jesus is the, is the good guys, they are not the good guys in this situation. So they are either wanting to embarrass Jesus publicly or they're wanting to discredit Jesus or, or maybe some of both. Um, and this is further proven by the fact that they then ask Jesus for a sign from heaven. So basically, they want Jesus to demonstrate with an unmistakable show of power in front of everyone that he is who he says he is. Um, but the reason that that's odd, if you have been paying attention at all, is that Jesus has been doing plenty of those types of signs in the Gospel of Matthew. Like every, every day, pretty much, as we're reading through this book. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or at least people who are, who are closely involved with them, some of their colleagues, have been present for many of those occasions. They've seen these things happen. So the request to Jesus here is pretty disingenuous. Right? They, they've already made up their minds not to believe in Jesus, but they're hoping with this that they can at least try to discredit him in some way. They're they're doing it by pretending as if they just need a like little more evidence, right? Just a, just a little bit more, a little more convincing and we'll be good. Um, but really what they're doing is they fit squarely into that second category of unbelief that we just talked about. They had already set out against Jesus in their minds. Um, to that point, the last time we actually saw these two groups together, uh, they were actually talking with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was telling them that they needed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it, it seems like they have not been doing a whole lot of repenting since then, at least not in this, in this context, which helps explain a little bit of Jesus' response as we keep reading. So look back in verse 2. I'm not going to do that again. Sorry, I almost took a sip of my tea very quickly. 
I've got a habit of doing it every time I read a passage, so I need to think about it because it's so hot. All right, verse 2. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So this reads a little bit like a backhanded compliment to the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus is like, hey, you guys actually do, you do a pretty good job with a limited amount of evidence, right? You guys can like forecast the weather just by looking at the sky. Like, that's pretty good, but you can't really piece together who I am <laughs> from what you've seen. Uh, and then he goes back, he, he uses a line that he used before in Matthew, um, or a reference that he's used before in verse 4. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. So Jesus directly calls out their deceptive behavior. And then he says, the only sign they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Um, so if you have spent much time around the Bible at all, you probably know Jonah as the guy who got swallowed by a big fish. Uh, and that's true. That is, that is what we are told in Scripture. Um, sometimes Jesus uses this story to parallel his own. Uh, so the last time that Jesus talked about this was in Matthew 12, and he highlighted how just like Noah, Jonah, not Noah, different person, Jonah spent three nights in the belly of this fish, he would also spend three nights in the grave before his resurrection. Um, so that's one layer of this reference to the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees, hey, I'm not going to give you any sign other than the sign of my own death and resurrection. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that, because if you know the story of Jonah in more detail, we talked about it a little bit here before, you also know that Jonah was a prophet with, with some issues, right? He had a personal problem, uh, namely that he did not do what God wanted him to do or told him to do, but he simultaneously thought he was better than all the other people who didn't do what God wanted them to do. Right? He was, he's a prophet who called out other people to repent, but never repents himself. Um, so when Jesus references this story to a group of religious leaders who also are not repenting and also think that they are better than other people who are not repenting, do you think that might have been a little strategic on Jesus' part? It was. That's the... I'm going to tell you the answer. Um, so... The sign of Jonah does, in fact, refer to Jesus' death and resurrection, to be sure. But I also think Jesus is saying, hey, you guys need to look back at the story of Jonah. Uh, I think you might, might see somebody you recognize in that story, right? That's Jesus' way of basically saying, hey, you guys don't need another sign. You, you don't need any more evidence. Uh, you don't need more proof. What you need is to actually repent, right? You need a radical change of heart. The problem is not a lack of proof. For you. The problem is that you have a hardened heart, is what he is saying to them. And with that, Jesus just walks away, right? He just drops the mic and he's out. He just leaves. And he goes and he rejoins his disciples. <laughs> and then what happens? Verse 5. This is where it gets great. Verse 5 says, When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. <laughs> Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
So yeast is what makes bread rise for anyone who does not know. But here, here's the thing about yeast. Uh, it takes a very small amount to make a really big difference. Uh, you take the tiniest pinch of yeast, work it into a batch of dough, it's going to change everything about it. Um, all, all the physical properties are going to change in what you're working with. A little goes a long way. So when you combine that understanding of yeast with the conversation that we just heard between Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees, you can start to discern what Jesus is saying here. He, he's, he's wanting to warn his disciples against adopting some aspect of the Pharisees and Sadducees' behavior. Right? And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But here's what we got to remember about this passage. You and I know from reading all of this together uh, about that conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But as far as we can tell, the disciples do not know about that conversation. We, we don't see that they are with Jesus when he has that conversation. So to them, it seems like Jesus walked up and just makes a comment about yeast. Um, so they're confused, as they tend to be, <laughs> as we've seen in Matthew. Oh, this is great. Verse 7. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Mm. <laughs> Gotta love the disciples. <laughs> they don't know what Jesus is referring to. So they just assume that he's taking some passive-aggressive jab at them <laughs> for, get, for getting bread again, right? Jesus, Jesus overhears this conversation, though, and he responds... Um, verse 8, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand I was not talking about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, so Kent mentioned last week, like, Jesus is ever so gentle in his response to the disciples being dense. And he mentioned that last week may have been the first face palm that Jesus made of like, all right, guys, come on. But this week, he just goes, he's like, oh my gosh, how? Oh, I love it. It's a great response. Um, so Jesus calls their attention back uh, to two occasions that we just talked about, where he has fed thousands upon thousands of people with very little food. Occasions that the disciples participated in. They were there for it. He reminds them of that as a way of saying, hey, I don't really know how else to tell you this, but I think I've got the bread thing under control. <laughs> like, we're good on that. I am not talking about bread. I'm talking to you about the behavior, the spiritual posture of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm saying don't be like them. Don't do what they're doing. <laughs> and then the conclusion to this passage, verse 12, is great. Uh, verse 12 says, Then, mm, finally, right on time, then they understood that he was not telling them <laughs> to guard against the yeast used in bread but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <laughs> that statement is fantastic. Because remember, the author of this, Matthew, is a disciple. He was there. He was one of these guys who, who completely misunderstood what Jesus said initially. So here, it's like him turning to the audience and be like, don't worry, everybody. We got it. 
Totally got it this time. Better late than never. Oh, it's great. All right, so notice the sequence of what happens in the passage, right? So Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees where he critiqued them for ignoring the signs that they had already seen from him. Uh, and, And then he has to have a similar conversation, albeit milder, with his disciples about how they have forgotten about the signs that they had seen from him as well. So so Jesus warns his disciples about the dangers of being dense, a warning that they are evidently just a little too dense to understand, at least at first. So to be sure, the the disciples definitely don't seem to be as dense as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're, They're not dead set against belief in Jesus from the outset. They've got more distazzo than they do apostia, more doubt than they do unbelief. But unbelief is still in there. And, and that, I would argue, is, is what the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees actually is. Right? It's, it's unbelief. It's the stubborn unwillingness to respond in faith and trust who Jesus is and what he's capable of. And it's the parts of the disciples and us, oftentimes, that inherently resist Jesus. It, it's... it's uh, It's the parts that resist his authority, the parts that resist his influence. And and the key, Jesus says right here, is to not let that little bit of unbelief infiltrate and permeate through our entire lives. The key is to deal with that when we see it, rather than giving it the time and the space and the air that it needs to grow and take over. The yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the stubborn unwillingness to respond in faith to what we've already seen Jesus do. That is unbelief. So I think all of that prompts the obvious question. You may have already been thinking this, but it's it's the idea of, of where might there be unbelief in us? And chances are we're, we're probably going to need some lenses to help identify it well. You may already know for yourself um, but most likely, we, we don't just go about our daily lives as followers of Jesus, have a moment and go, oh, you know what? I think it was a little unbelief right there. Like, we're usually not that self-aware. Right? If we could do that, uh, I don't know that we would need warnings like this from Jesus if we were able to catch it ourselves every time. So for the rest of our time today, um, I just want to offer you some modern forms of unbelief that I have seen play out in the lives of some followers of Jesus. Right? Just the ways that I've seen over the years, over the past several years that I've been uh, helping lead people, that unbelief tends to present itself. And the hope is that these will, like I said, give you some lenses to help spot unbelief in each of us when it crops up so that we can deal with it. So first, sometimes unbelief looks like rationalism. Rationalism. So rationalism is the type of unbelief that says something is only true and worth following if it makes logical sense to me. Something is only true if it makes complete logical sense to me. And there was a lot of this in the Sadducees. Right? Remember, we said they didn't believe in any supernatural things at all. They, they stuck with made logical sense to them in the moment. Um, this is the posture that as long as the things that Jesus asks me to do Uh, are things that make complete rational sense to me and to the world around me. Uh, I'm down for it if if it is completely logical, yeah, but not further than that. 
so if Jesus is calling me to take a higher paying job somewhere else where I can continue to increase my standard of living like a good American, uh, I am all in. Absolutely. Thank you, Jesus, for calling me to that. Big fan. Um, but if Jesus were to ask me to take a significant pay cut to work at a place that helps me serve people and the community around me and the kingdom more meaningfully, yeah, I don't know about that. That's, uh, that's probably a calling for somebody else. I'm going to need some more confirmation for that one, right? Or I can't really get, or maybe it's I can get on board with the, with the rational parts of faith, right? I can read my Bible. I can study. I can, I can disciple other people. I can have meetings. That is good. I am here for that. Spiritual gifts, like healing, prophecy, learning to sit in silence and solitude and listen for the still, small voice of God and follow his prompting, yeah, that kind of weirds me out. I'm not going to do that. That seems, that seems irrational to me or illogical, so I'm going to pass. So rationalism is, is like what we said, the belief that in order for me to follow Jesus into something, the logic of it is going to have to completely check out on my terms, right? But here's the problem with that. Um, Jesus is, is going to call us to a number of things in our life that probably don't make complete logical sense to us, at least not when we say yes to them. Certainly, he's going to call us to do a great many things that, uh, that don't make sense to the people around us who don't follow Jesus. Um, and, and even further than that, the very idea of following Jesus in the first place is going to seem to a lot of people to be illogical. I mean, I, I've heard that argument said. We, we believe in a, in a guy who, who said he was king of the world, said he was proving that by being executed and then coming back from the dead and then going up into heaven. So if you were wanting a system of belief that always makes complete rational sense, I think you're probably going to want to look elsewhere, if we're being honest. Now, just because I know Christians get a bad rap for, for this often, that is not me saying followers of Jesus should not use our brains. That is not at all what I am saying. It is not to say that we reject anything that makes rational sense just because we're Christians and we believe in the supernatural. Not at all. Logic is not your enemy. Reason is not bad. Not at all. It just is not our sole guiding principle as a follower of Jesus. It's not our ultimate authority. Rationalism can be a form of unbelief, a, a way of, of refusing to listen to what God is clearly saying because we can't make logical sense of it. Right? Sometimes God calls us to do things that make complete logical sense. Absolutely. And sometimes God calls us to do things that make very little sense, especially from the world's perspective. But that doesn't make them any less worth doing. Right? So second, on the other end of the spectrum, we have something called emotionalism. So emotionalism is a form of unbelief that says something can only be true if it feels true. can only be true if it feels true. Uh, so a lot of Christians that I know or that I've come into contact with make decisions like this, saying things like, you know, it just felt right. It just feels good. Or, you know, it just it didn't feel right. 
Um, again, here, this is not necessarily wrong. Feeling things is not wrong. That can absolutely be the Holy Spirit making something feel right or not right. That can definitely happen. But, but when that becomes the sole authority in our life or on decision-making, it can get kind of dicey. Right? I, I think we've told stories like this before, but we, we've seen situations with uh, engaged couples that we've been doing premarital counseling with. So this happened over years, probably 10 years of, of going through this. Um, people who are engaged, going through premarital with the church, and they're already sleeping together. And so we'll counsel them on how, if they are followers of Jesus, uh, that is not, according to Scripture, God's design for sexuality or for their relationship. And sometimes people will say things like, well, we're going to pray about it. To which I'm like, I mean, you can, but like, I can help you skip some steps. I can tell you what he's going to say. <laughs> save you some time. I don't actually say that. But uh, they, they'll come back and they'll be like, you know what? Uh, we prayed about it. It just doesn't feel right to discontinue that part of our relationship. You know, it just feels right for us to keep doing what we're doing. To which I then think, like, yeah, but it feels great. <laughs> I'm sure that's, a, that's not the issue, right? The, the issue is that that's not God's design for sexuality, right? There's also people who, who struggle greatly to implement any type of spiritual discipline into their life, right? They'll say things like, you know, when I read the Bible, I just, I just don't feel anything. When I pray, I just don't get anything out of it. You know, it just doesn't feel right. And people use that as a reason to, to just bail on it altogether. But, but that's uh, giving into emotionalism, the, the belief that for something to be true or good or worthwhile, I got to feel like it is while I'm doing it. And we've done an entire series here at City Church in the past that you should go listen to if you haven't about how emotions are not bad things. Not at all. Emotions can be beautiful, really helpful things to our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with other followers of Jesus. They're just not the authority on what is or is not true. So don't let unbelief of emotionalism determine how you think about reality. Sometimes God calls you to do things that feel great, that feel right. And sometimes he invites you into things that don't immediately feel that way. They might still be good things, but it may not feel that way sometimes. Does that make sense? I hope so. All right. Third, <laughs> unbelief sometimes comes in the form of moralism. That was better that time. I'm learning. Moralism is a form of unbelief uh, that says, if I do good things, God will give me a good life. Right? If I do good things, God will give me a good life. So moralism is what the Pharisees are notorious for throughout Scripture. Um, so Christian sociologist uh, Christian Smith, his name is also Christian, he points out that uh, what many Western Christians or, or Christians in uh, America specifically and some other countries around this part of the world call Christianity is actually a lot closer to what he calls a moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. So moralistic, meaning that the main idea is that God, or the main thing God cares about is um, that I live a moral life, right? That's the primary thing God cares about. Therapeutic, meaning that the main purpose of my belief is to help me feel better about myself. 
And then deism, meaning that God exists, yeah, uh, but he's not really all that personal, right? He, he's more of this impersonal, disconnected force that exists somewhere out in the clouds, doesn't really have much to do with my daily life. And, and I think that last part is why uh, moralism can be such an insidious type of unbelief, um, because it, it actually keeps you from meeting the real God. It prevents you from doing that. The one, the one who wants to know you, the one who wants to speak to you and walk with you and be with you. So moralism just turns God into this glorified vending machine. You put in the right amount of coins, God gives you the life you want in return. Whereas the real God, the God that we read about in Scripture, is a God who wants to enter into a real, actual friendship with you based on grace, not based on what you do. Moralism ends up being crushing to us, and it, and it robs us of actually enjoying God. Um, so really quickly, let me give you some ways to discern uh, if moralism is a thing for you or in your life. One of the quickest ways to spot it is to watch your reaction when your vending machine, so to speak, um, malfunctions, when that version of God doesn't work like you expect it to. So you feel like you're living a good moral life and, and bad things still happen to you. And you get inordinately angry about it, especially towards God. Right? If you immediately get frustrated that God didn't hold up his part of the bargain, that's a pretty good, pretty, pretty good giveaway that, that you are operating under this idea of moralism. So we're going to do two more real quick before we wrap up. I'm going to be faster about these two. Um, so the next is cynicism. Uh, so cynicism is one that I have found to be a big one for a lot of people. So cynicism is the, is the type of unbelief that says everything good is too good to be true. Everything good is too good to be true. It's when we decide that if we just expect the worst from everything, we can never be let down, right? If I always expect the worst, I'll never be disappointed. It's a form of self-protection, right? And, and cynicism, in many ways, has become the spirit of our age recently. And, and some of that I can understand, right? We've been going through a two-year-long global pandemic. Uh, Vladimir Putin is doing some, some horrific things in Ukraine. All kinds of other things are happening. And all of that is made worse by the fact that for the first time in human history, we have a 24-7 news outlet in our pocket. It's constantly going off. And very rarely are the things posted there trending toward the positive and uplifting. Unless we just have very different news feeds, which I would love to see yours. So on one level, I get it, right? I, I, I get that idea, but here's what you have got to know about cynicism. It can do an okay job of protecting you against some disappointment. Sure, I can see that. But it can also do a really good job of preventing you from ever experiencing much joy at all. It can be a, it can be a complete barrier for joy. And for followers of Jesus, it completely discounts the gospel. Right? The story about how God sent his son Jesus to rescue and redeem what was lost, to reconcile all things to himself. You can't live by that story and remain cynical about everything all the time. Those two things cannot go together. It's a resistance to, to living your life by the one true story of the world. And then finally, the flip side of cynicism is actually optimism. 
So optimism is the belief that there's always a bright side to everything, right? Sometimes this presents itself in like the really upbeat, always positive, always cheery, Enneagram sevens of your life. Shout out to the sevens. Make everything great, truly. Uh, But sometimes it also presents itself in some of the Christian cliches that I think we hear throughout life. Like uh, everything happens for a reason. And the best is yet to come to everything. And while those comments might be well-meaning, I do believe that, sometimes they're not all that helpful. Especially when someone is in the midst of tremendous suffering and difficulty. Now, in some ways, like we just said, we are called to that type of optimism as followers of Jesus. Like, we, we know how the story ends, and we know that it's good news. So that should inform our thinking and our, and our speaking and our feeling, but that's a particular kind of optimism. That is not a blind, foundationless optimism. So when, when optimism is not directly rooted in the gospel it can actually become a form of unbelief. It can be a barrier to faith rather than an expression of faith. And and here's why. Blind optimism can be a way of saying, you know what, everything's great, everything's going to be great, I don't need the gospel to be true because I can just look on the bright side. I can find the silver lining in everything. And practically, uh, optimism can be a way to just avoid recognizing and, and grieving and entering into some of the most broken spaces in our world because we just avoid it or we try to put a positive spin on it. Whereas the gospel tells us, hey, the world is a dark place sometimes. Some things are, in fact, pretty bad. Some things are even worse than they seem. But there is no space that is too bad and too broken for the transforming power of Jesus and for the power of Jesus to reach in and transform those spaces. That is the good news. So those are just five different forms um, that I have seen unbelief come in. Uh, Rationalism, emotionalism, moralism, cynicism, and optimism. And I'm sure there's more where those came from, and I'm sure you can identify plenty of those, but those are all subtle ways that uh, I think a lot of us resist the good news of Jesus in our hearts. Ways that we, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the disciples at times, resist seeing Jesus for who he is and what he's really capable of. Which brings up our final question, right? What's the solution? If, if we see any of that in us, how do we rid our hearts of the yeast of unbelief? How do we do that? Well, for that, we return to the very beginning of the passage. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees reveal their unbelief in asking for a sign, what does Jesus say? No sign will be given to you except what? Sign of Jonah. Anybody remember what the sign of Jonah stands for? It's Jesus' death and his resurrection. In his death and resurrection, the gospel itself, we find something that is so much better than all those forms of unbelief. So much better. We see something that's, that's better than rationalism. Because sometimes the things that we need most make very little logical sense to us. 
a crucified king, a risen martyr, a, a conquering victim. Those things don't make a lot of sense. And yet they're the very basis of our faith. And in the gospel, we see something better than emotionalism. Because sometimes our emotions lie to us. What the disciples thought was the worst, most grievous day in history was actually the day that history changed for the bad, right? When they sat in the upper room, they were overwhelmed and they were terrified. Jesus was rolling away the stone from the tomb. Right? We see something better than moralism because the cross means that God's affections for us hinge on Jesus's goodness. They don't come and go based on ours. Right? We see something better than cynicism because we don't need to insulate ourselves from disappointment. We don't need to. We have a Savior who walks with us through it. And we see something so much better than optimism because the resurrection of Jesus does not leave us searching high and low for the bright side. It opens up a whole new future altogether. Right? Every form of unbelief, these five and any others, are just cheap imitations for the good news of Jesus. It's a counterfeit version a counterfeit version of something that is altogether better and altogether different. And all of that is made available to you and I and anyone through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's beautiful. And I pray that God will help us all believe that good news to resist the temptations of unbelief. So I invite you to, to pray with me as we close. God, we um, you know, just thank you first um, that because of uh, because of your love for us, your desire to be in relationship with us and, and sending your son for us, um, that despite the brokenness of our world, despite the ways that we strive and fail, despite the ways that we are constantly trying to find a positive outlook, a positive spin on some things that are so tragic and heartbreaking, that we are free from any of those forms of unbelief because of the good news of, of your gospel, the good news that, that you paid the price so that our performance is no longer the most important thing. Um, the, the, the sin and brokenness around us is no longer the power that dominates our life. We are set free from all of those things through, through your life, death, and resurrection, God. We thank you so much for the beauty of that and, and the reality that you invite all of us into that. Um, and I pray that, that as we continue to grow in our understanding, of that truth that we would continue to, to grow um, in all of the areas of unbelief in our hearts, that you would help us uh, through your spirit and, and through other followers of Jesus in our life, empowered by your spirit, that we would be able to identify 
those areas of unbelief in ourselves and that we would grow to be more like you and that we would help other followers of Jesus around us fight against their unbelief as well, that we can remind them of the, of the beauty of the gospel and what you have done on their behalf as well, and that, we can, that we can rejoice together and, and work to rid ourselves of that unbelief, God. And we thank you that in the midst of our unbelief, you don't stop, you don't stop caring, you don't stop loving, you don't stop pursuing. You remain constant, and we thank you for that. Yeah, in Jesus' name we pray.